0: I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week a special Pledge Drive edition of Life Examined on KCRW. We're bringing you a couple of our favorite interviews. German forester and author Peter Wallaben wants us to enjoy trees and see them from a different perspective.
1: The tree is standing head down. The real head or brain of the tree are the root tips. So There, the tree makes decisions. There, the tree stores its memory.
0: And later, something that's near and dear to our hearts, author Susan Orleans on why her connection to animals, and especially donkeys, runs deep.
2: I think big ears are, we're kind of hardwired to find big ears very adorable. (laughs) They are snack size, You know, unlike a horse, donkeys are utterly endearing.
0: Two authors and experts join me to talk about the hidden life of trees and the extraordinary world of animals on our Spring Pledge Drive edition of Life Examined that's coming up. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and you're listening to KCRW during our Spring Pledge Drive. It's that time of year when we ask for your support. So if you enjoy Life Examined, the big questions we pose, the nuanced conversations we try and have, and the unique programming that makes KCRW what it is, please consider making a donation, small or large, and help to support what we do each week. Go to kcrw.com slash give to make your donation now, and thank you. This week, we've picked two of our favorite interviews. We start with Trees in German Forester and best-selling author Peter Wallobin. It's hard to imagine a world without trees. They've long been a source of inspiration for art and poetry, and today their leafy canopies are considered the vanguard in fighting global climate change by absorbing CO2 and cooling the planet. Old, mature trees and forests are of greatest value, and their biggest threat, and ours, is deforestation. Maybe you've seen the images of hundreds of thousands of clear-cut acres of the Amazon forest. But more than just giant shade umbrellas, some trees can act as parents and good neighbors. Trees have been here a long time and have learned to collaborate with each other, developing a sophisticated social network. As German forester Peter Wallobin explains in his book, The Hidden Life of Trees, What They Feel, How They Communicate, the brain of a tree lies in its roots. Because trees can't move, a tree uses its roots to communicate, to make decisions, and even to store memories. His latest book is called The Heartbeat of Trees, Embracing Our Ancient Bond with Forests and Nature, and he joins me now. Peter Wallabin, welcome.
1: Thank you, Jonathan, for the invitation.
0: I, I want to talk about some of your earlier research, which describes trees as social creatures. It's, it's something that I find so fascinating in your work. Can you introduce us to this idea of how a tree can be social?
1: Yeah, I think uh, it surprises many people, but on the other hand, that's a principle of nature that cooperation is better than competition. And uh, trees are so much older than we are, and often we think, ah, Peter Wohleben is um, anthropomorphizing trees, but it's mm. the other way around. Uh, we have developed very much later than trees, and we have the same principles. So that means, for example, that trees know. Uh, as a single tree, no, I'm not a forest and just as a forest and I'm, I'm able to cool down. For example, uh, trees are able to cool down the, the local climate around about 15 degrees by sweating together. For example, mm-hmm. a big broadleaf tree is able to, to gas out as much as 500 liters of water per day and that's cooling the local climate, there's much more rain over such forests. And that all just works when trees work together as a forest, as, a, as you say, as a social community.
0: Wow. And there's so many interesting examples in this. For example, um, you talk about trees, how, how they're able to nurse a sick neighbor, a tree that's not doing as well. It can be helped by others. Is that right?
1: That's right. And I discovered that uh, well, around about 25 years ago when I stumbled upon an old stump. And the stump, the tree has been felled around about 400 years ago. And was still alive without any green leaf. And a tree uh, burns sugar in its cells, so it it needs energy. It needs fresh sugar from photosynthesis. And uh, without any green leaf, that's not possible. And how could this tree survive four hundred years? This stump. And uh, the only explanation was that the surrounding trees were uh, feeding this tree, nursing this tree, this stump. I'm uh, always talking about a tree because the real tree is. In the underground, uh, what we see above, it's just for getting nutrition. And um, mm. yeah, and then as a forester, I was trained to look at trees as competitors. And I, as forester, uh, was the referee. And uh, the tra- the tree, when, when the two trees were struggling, I could cut one tree down and say, okay. Um, i'm the referee, and um, you get now more space this um, remaining tree and in reality it 's a destruction of the social community and with with this old stump, I learned that the trees are cooperative
0: yeah that's beautiful i mean what and for them what's what's the point of forming these communities um I think you you alluded a little bit to the aspect of you know we 're better together than we are alone, something like that
1: exactly um a tree wants to become very old because a tree is very slow and it takes decades if not centuries to become grown up to reproduce and uh, there are many dangers and therefore they support each other um, and when they start very slow in their youth then they can become very very old that's also a principle by nature and therefore a childhood The tree childhood could last as long as two or three hundred years and then the tree with this uh, very slow youth growth, uh, it can become 1000 years old up to 10,000 years old or even more. The oldest tree we know so far is around about 10,000 years old. This is the the old lonely spruce tree in uh, Sweden, in the Swedish mountains, but uh, perhaps they are much older trees because there has to uh, be done uh, a lot of research on single trees
0: we're most familiar seeing trees above ground and and admiring them or or cutting them down but but below them is this profound and amazing complex of fungal networks how does that work it's it's always amazed me when i've learned about it
1: yeah um first i have to say that that the tree is um standing head down um Mm -hmm. because um the the real head or brain of the tree are the root tips. There's a lot of research, for example, done here by the University of Bonn. That in the root tips, there are brain-like structures. Uh, there are some molecules, signaling molecules that are the same way, uh, like in our brain. So There the tree makes decisions, there the tree um, stores its memory, and um, there is a lot of communication with the surrounding species in the soil and between um, the trees of the same, let's say, family. For example, they warn each other from bark beetle attacks, from fungi attacks, from because there are also evil fungi, which like to kill trees, um, from droughts because one tree is, is uh, recognizing this much earlier than other trees, depending on where it stands. So they are communicating a lot because they are so slow, and it's very important for them to know dangers in advance. And because the roots are not connecting every tree, uh the the fungi network and this fungi filaments are are very very tiny uh they are transporting the news on electrical and chemical ways, and therefore they are getting paid by the trees with sugar and uh, it can be uh up to one third of uh, the sugar production of a tree which has to be paid to the fungal network and uh that uh, therefore that you have an imagination How little this this, uh, filaments are. On um, one teaspoon full of of soil, um, forest soil, you can have a mile of fungi filaments.
0: So, I mean, I I just want to make sure I understand this. The the trees are almost compensating the, the fungi networks, in a sense, to pass these messages back and forth. Is that right?
1: That's that's exactly right, and it's a really expensive internet <laughs> compared with the human internet, and it's very slow. But what interests would interest me most uh, when we research tree communication, uh, in general, we can just um, discover things uh, when trees are stressed by attacks or by weather conditions or whatsoever. I uh, would be happy when uh, one day a scientist would discover what trees are telling each other when they are happy, because that's, Mm -hmm. that's really hard to prove.
0: Is it too much of a stretch to say that a tree has a certain consciousness in the way that we think of humans being conscious beings?
1: Yeah, that's a difficult question, because uh, no scientist, no biologist would say yes. Uh, we have here scientists in, in Germany who um, say, okay, yeah, okay, for that question, we have to ask plants. <laughs> uh, okay. But there, there are uh, um, uh, some hints that there, there is um, uh, consciousness. For example, we know that plants and trees uh, produce pain-suppressing substances. If pain is just a reflex, for example, when a tree is hurt by a bark beetle, then you can measure an electrical signal going through the tissue, then there's a reaction on this attack, but that could be just a reflex. Um, but pain suppressing substances, we produce that in situations of stress, for example, when we have an accident. Uh, why do we produce pain suppressing substances? Pain is a very, very important signal to re- react without thinking. and. Uh, when we suppress it it's very dangerous but in some situations we suppress it why to stay conscious and mm. trees and plants are doing the same so if a um, being uh, produces pain suppressing substances uh, then we can assume that there is a, a, a sort of uh, consciousness but Many people say, "Oh no, oh no, that's that's, that's going too far." Uh, and the reason why we react like this is, what else should we eat? <laughs> but these right. questions uh, yeah. are, are not scientific questions. It's okay to eat plants. It's okay uh, to eat meat. Uh, although I'm a vegetarian, because I think uh, meat um, is the main tree killer, uh, forest killer. But mm. um, but but even if plants uh, are conscious about what they are doing, it's okay to eat them because otherwise we would die, and it's our right to to survive.
0: Thinking about the the levels of of sophistication in in these trees or tree networks, are there are there different degrees to that? Uh, are are certain I don't know deciduous trees more advanced in certain ways than other types of trees? Like what's the what's the differentiation you see as you go to different groves and uh, see these different organisms?
1: Um, we know that there are trees which like to be on their own. And so I assume that they are not so cooperative, that there's not so much communication, but but uh, that's just a guess. Uh, many, many questions I have to answer with, um, I don't know because uh, plants in general and trees are the, the last things uh, which uh, are going to be discovered um, we, in, in detail. For example, um, that's a very new discovery that trees have their human system um, to def- defeat um, uh, illness uh, outside their roots, outside their body. and That's very untypical for, for beings in general. For example, our human system is in our body and trees have it on the outer side with a bacteria with which they cooperate or, for example, trees can also suffer from something similar like COVID-19. <laughs> which is surprising. No one is thinking about virus diseases um, in trees, which uh, are brought in here due uh, to the uh, global trade. So there are many, many things to discover. But the, um, And modern biologists say that the age of discovery for, for uh, biology has just to begin.
0: As you enter a forest now with with this incredible amount of knowledge, I, and you think of the destruction of these incredible forests all across the globe, I, for you, I mean, what, what goes into this idea now of removing beautiful old growth trees? I mean, is it, is it almost kind of incomprehensible and immoral?
1: um it's depending for uh, which purpose uh, people are doing this uh if it is really necessary um then it's okay but but most forests as i said uh are destroyed for the meat production to get more, more uh, new meadows or soya plantations and whatsoever um here in in um, the forest where i'm responsible for uh, we protect this forest and there's no no tree uh, going to be cut down anymore uh, and for me it's it's very exhausting looking at all those bad managed forests in germany for example we have the biggest clear cuts ever make, made by the uh, state forest commission which is responsible for the protection of the forest. it's it's, it's like in brazil in germany in the moment it's, it's really hard to see and and, and uh much of the timber is exported to the United States, that's that, that's also, it's, it's a the global trade. Um, in, in in other years, we import a lot of, of timber from Canada, for example, so for me, the, the forestry which, which we experience today is getting harder and harder and uh, therefore with my academy we are working for the protection of the forest. Um, we have lawyers which uh, um, control uh, the, the the clear cuts which uh, are bringing the, the forest authorities to court uh, so for what, what is good for me because i'm an optimist optimist even if it sounds like i'm a pessimist i think we are we are very soon reaching a tipping point um where we see that we have to do a lot, a lot more things for climate change to preventing climate change we have to do a lot more for restoring forests for protecting old growth forest and more and more people getting aware of that. And I think, yeah, in one or two years, we will see um, a lot of uh, changes, positive changes.
0: This is a question we deal with in California a lot, which is the, the dueling arguments of how much do you just try and clear out forests and, and old dead trees because they're considered to be tinder for fires yeah, versus yeah. leaving them in place. And, and I suppose many would say that's more of the natural path that, you know, nature wouldn't be just, you know, sweeping out old trees. How do you fall on these arguments?
1: Yeah, I think that's a little bit crazy because uh, the forest you have in California, j- just a few of them, are, is uh, are really old growth forest, and mm. uh, it, it, it depends on which sort of timber uh, is remaining in the forest. When it is timber from thinning, lots of thin branches which dry out very fast, or thin stems uh, which are drying out, or even clear cuts cuts which are drying out, then uh, then you have uh, tinder to for for new fires, but old trees, old um, trunks which are on the ground, they store water like a sponge and even if it is month of drought, those uh, trunks are full of water and cooling their surrounding area, they are not burning, but um, and, and the end with the old old big trees over them, which are also cooling the surrounding air, you will at maximum see a ground fire, Ground fire, you can see in California by nature, but not a wildfire burning the complete complete forest. And that is done by forestry by by land use changes. Uh, and now uh, people say, okay, we have to clean up the forest and bring all the the branches out. And I would say mm-hmm. we need more old trees and we need less forestry.
0: So, so really, more of keep what we have versus just just start just versus stripping away, which I think has been the argument. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's right. And uh, that's that's what we think. We think we can manipulate nature, but therefore we have to understand it. And no one can really say we have understood nature so far because otherwise many people should have predicted what's uh, five years ago what's going on now. And uh, for a minimum in Germany, I see that, that forest scientists, for example, are not able to see in the future for even uh, just three years. Um, so I think we, we should... Leave nature on its own wherever it is possible, and um, then we will have a better situation.
0: You talk about, in, in your new book, the heartbeat of trees, um, that even even though we feel that we are losing touch with nature or trees, you know, through our phones, through, through the technology that we're using right now, that, that, it, that there is something that can be reclaimed and that it's still very much alive within us. I wonder if you can kind of bring us into some of the ideas that you're talking about in this new project.
1: Yeah, um, um, we always, or, or in, in modern times say, ah, we have degenerated senses and we are so far away from nature. And that makes nature destruction more easier because we are mm-hmm. on this side and nature is on the other side, but we are still within. And we see it in the very, on a very bitter way now in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, that we are still part of nature and the forces of nature, but there are also very nice ways of being connected. For example, uh, when you walk in the forest, your blood pressure sinks, you, your uh, human system gets better. And um, that is caused uh, because we are still connected. We are breathing in tree communication. And then our body reacts. Now we could say, okay, hmm, that is really strange that, that uh, uh, when we, and our body realizes, ah, we are in nature, we are, are in forest, um, especially then our blood pressure gets better. But it's uh, there's just the other way around. When you're going out of the forest, in your office, in your home, in the city, then your blood pressure is rising. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the blood pressure in the forest is the normal way. And what I love most is that our instincts... Our body is so connected that you are react that you are reacting and you can measure it. I've done that with a TV host here in Germany. We were in the city of Cologne, in the inner city, and uh, we uh, measured the blood pressure. And then we went out of the forest and uh, the blood pressure decreased. So uh, everyone can experience that. And our uh, conscious mind would say, ah, that's nice here. I'm relaxing.
0: Yeah. It's funny I as we have this conversation I've just returned from from the redwoods up past Santa Cruz California and it's just I'm sure so many listeners can relate to that when you get in those old growth forests and the green and the quiet I mean there is something that's so meditative that that just sweeps over you it's it's kind of it's kind of amazing
1: yeah, exactly, and and why is in those old forests? It's it's better in in those old forests than in let's say younger pine forest, right? Mm, mm. Uh, why? Because the old forests are in a better balance, and there's less stress communication between the trees. And and, and you would say, wow, wonderful, and your body say, yeah, right, that's the right place to settle. <laughs> mm.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's this whole idea of forest bathing. I you know, I I think that maybe more popular in Japan where you hear about this more often, but but it's a term that is is kind of moving around. What I mean, what is what does forest bathing to you mean? What's the idea behind it?
1: Um the idea, the idea is that you allow yourself just to relax in the forest without having a schedule. <laughs> That's okay. the idea behind. It. So there yes. are many different ways of forest bathing, but but as as um, educated grown ups we say ah okay we can't go in into a forest without making a hike a hike of let's say 15 miles and we have to be there in the next restaurant or sightseeing point at noon and back uh, at the car at let's say 5 pm or whatsoever so we have a right. schedule and when you make forest bathing you allow yourself to lay one hour under a tree and looking mm. up in the crown and seeing the clouds passing by and relaxing and uh, that's very hard to stand, to be honest. And therefore, we have trainers—not not we, but but in general, people who make forest bathing. Uh, they have—they are trainers, and they make some yoga with you or other exercises. Um, and then, when someone says yes, you are allowed to relax without time pressure, and then you you relax really. And um, that, yeah, that's all about forest bathing. So you can do it yourself with the tree in your garden or in the next city park. Uh, all you have to do is to uh, ke- uh, take your time uh, without pressure.
0: Yeah. I mean, there is this idea more and more of kind of a, a nature deprivation as, as almost an illness or something that can, that can remove years to your life. That, that's something I take that you believe in as well.
1: Yeah. yeah, And we know that, uh, for example, when you're in the hospital, uh, the, you need less painkillers uh, when you look at the tree. It's a psychological phenomenon, of course, but uh, it works. Uh, and and um, so some hospitals are constructed differently and have parks mm-hmm. outside because you get uh, healthier or, or you recover uh, faster. So uh, trees are very important for our health. And therefore, it's, yeah, and, and how we treat the forest in the moment, it's like a mirror. Uh, when we treat forests better, we treat, treat ourselves better.
0: Peter Wallabin, thank you so much for the time today. It's been, been a fascinating conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. It was really a pleasure. Peter Wallabin is the author of
0: The Hidden Life of Trees. We'll be back with our special Pledge Drive edition of Life Examined after this short break. Welcome back to Life Examined. I'm Jonathan Bastian, and you're listening to KCRW during our spring Pledge Drive. It's when we ask our listeners, whether in Southern California or across the globe, to go to kcrw.com slash give to make your donation today. We just heard German forester and author of The Hidden Life of Trees, Peter Wallaban, talk about how important it is for us not to lose our ability to connect with the natural world, and in particular, trees. I wanted to continue this theme of our deep connection with other living species with one of our favorite guests, Susan Orlean. Orlean is fascinated by animals. She has two dogs, and she and her husband have raised turkeys, ducks, chickens, and cattle. But Orlean's interest goes way beyond loving and caring for her own animals. She's curious about all sorts of creatures and how they interact with us, why they behave the way they do, and why some animals work for us when they don't have to. As she puts it, quote, "...animals are familiar yet mysterious." From the dog parks of New York City to the donkey markets of Morocco, Orlean shares a bit about the profound interspecies bond we share with these creatures. Susan Orlean is a staff writer for The New Yorker. Her latest book is a collection of essays called On Animals. Susan Orlean, welcome.
2: Oh, my pleasure. and happy to be with you.
0: Susan, tell us a little bit about your own love of animals. Did you grow up with them? Did you love them at a young age? What could you tell us?
2: I loved animals from the time I can remember. All of the books that I gravitated toward, um, my fantasy life, everything was about animals from the time I was very young. The first book I ever wrote was, it was called Herbert the Nearsighted Pigeon. And all of the characters in the book were animals. And this was when I was supposedly about five years old. Mm. My parents were not particularly animal people, and we had a cat who was nominally our cat. <laughs> I barely remember seeing the cat. It it existed in our, our home somehow, but we didn't interact with the cat very much. I wanted a dog desperately, but my mom was afraid of dogs and afraid that they would bring a a lot of dirt and hair and mess into the house, which of course is entirely true. So she really resisted. Finally, when I was about 13 years old, we got a dog. It was our first dog. So I I wasn't one of those people who grew up in a household full of animals. Um, Really, it was a bit of a delayed um, entry point at Thirteen, that seems to me very old.
0: (laughs) And what do you think fascinated you about animals as a young child? And and did that interest, I mean, I I take it, it it continued as you grew older as well?
2: The answer to that, I think, is a little hard to nail down. I, I think people have hardwired into them an interest in animals. Obviously, some people don't want pets and they're not particularly moved or curious about animals. And that's absolutely natural. But I think the draw to animals is is really innate. It's just built into our human nature. I was talking to a first grade teacher yesterday and she said to me, you know, my, the kids in my class, the one subject I know will get them to settle down and listen is animals. They're just instantly fascinated by them. And what is that? Is it that they seem understandable but enigmatic? So they are kind of this fascination of something that seems familiar but you can't figure out? Is it that they're Fun to look at? I mean, that's certainly a big part of it. It's just simply that a lot of the animals we like are, are just beautiful or cute or interesting. Is it that there's something um, extraordinary about relating across species? I think that's a huge part of it that this is a living thing that has its own will and its own behaviors, and yet you can kind of understand it and interact with it. I was watching a guy the other day who was holding a snake and I have never been somebody who had a particular urge for reptiles but the snake was curled around his arm and hugging his arm and he looked he was absolutely thrilled you know it was the snake was holding on to him because she didn't want to fall and that was her security was to hold on to his arm i think that there's some um electric charge that goes through us when we interact with another species
0: and it makes me think that we get something from animals that that maybe we don't get from other humans um, some level of support or love i don't know do you, do you think that's true
2: I think that's entirely true. Uh, there is a simplicity and a purity of relating to an animal that is very satisfying and it's really different from relating to people. Um, there, there is no, there, there's none of the, the kind of mediating facts about an animal. You, you see a friend you love your friend but you're also a little annoyed because they were late the last time you met for lunch and you don't like the way they're wearing their hair these days and you've got you've got a million data points in relating to a person with an animal that it's so you are relieved of all of that mm-hmm. there's a way that you have the purest of simple emotions with an animal it's not that uh, you know when I'm thinking about a pet our pets are not always doing what we want them to do and you can get mad at them you can get tired of managing them but when it comes to simply exchanging affection it's so pure Mm. and I think that um, we respond to that really powerfully
0: from all the stories that you've written about animals, and and I'm sure from the research that you've done, has this body of work given you more respect for animals, or the complexity of of their biology, or the way they live? Um, what do you think about that?
2: Absolutely, uh, you know, there's a way that it's very easy to project human emotions onto animals, and some of those are accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, the I mean, it's probably easier to put it the other way around, which is that humans have a lot of animal emotions <laughs> uh, rather than the other way around. We're simply recognizing in animals those emotions that and, and urges and desires that are extremely animal. They also have their own existence, and I think that's a lot of what makes them interesting. They have their own inner life, it's certainly not as as nuanced as a hu- human inner life, at least as far as we can tell. One thing that I find fascinating about animals is that as far as we know, they are not preoccupied with the question of their mortality. Mm. They don't relate to past and future the way people do so they they don't have that dimension to their thinking their existence though is ultimately unknowable to us and and that came home very powerfully to me while I was working on these stories that as much as we can figure them out we can study them zoologically, we can observe them and analyze their behavior. Part of the nature of the animal world is that we can never fully know it. We, we have no capacity to truly understand how they behave and what motivates them. That's a lot of what makes them so compelling. The complexity of their social structures and their behaviors came through very clearly to me. And certainly these stories are very much about the people around these animals and observing people's reaction to them as much as they were about the animals themselves. But I, I came away uh, both... Odd and mystified in a fresh way, realizing that no matter how we try, we, we will never be able to really know what an animal consciousness is about.
0: Well, let's jump into the new book here a little bit. And uh, one animal I know that you wrote about a lot is the donkey, which is, <laughs> I think it's an animal that doesn't doesn't get enough airtime uh, or respect out there. So let, let's do that now. And, and one of the great pieces you wrote actually takes place in Morocco. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that piece?
2: I've always loved donkeys, partly because I think they're the cutest animals,
0: mm-hmm.
2: or among the cutest animals. They... I think big ears are, we're kind of hardwired to find big ears very adorable (laughs) and they, they are kind of snack size, you know, unlike a horse, um, where there's a kind of intimidating quality of, of size. Donkeys are generally small enough that you can approach them without feeling fear and just appreciate the look on their face, which to me is utterly endearing. I became really interested in them too because I'm I'm very intrigued by animals that work, yeah. animals that have jobs, animals that... Are in service and and the way they they do those jobs tirelessly and seemingly um, with an attitude of well look it's my job. <laughs> I mean every donkey has that look on its face. So Smithsonian Magazine had approached me with a kind of dream offer. They said. Where do you want to go in the world? We'll send you.
0: Mm.
2: At the time, I was really in my fullest flowering of my interest in donkeys. My husband had promised to get me a donkey as a birthday gift. Mm. So I was really thinking a lot about donkeys. And I said, well, I want to go to Morocco to the um, big donkey market because I knew that donkeys were used widely through Morocco, and someone had told me about this huge donkey market where people buy and sell their donkeys, and it sounded to me like the Moroccan equivalent of a an auto meet. You know that people bring their their used donkeys and swap them for new donkeys and. I just, I I thought this is where I want to go. What I then stumbled upon as I was doing a little bit of research before I went to Morocco was the discovery, which I was not aware of, that in the city of Fez, which is one of the bigger cities in Morocco, because it's an ancient city and it's a walled city, there are no automotive um, vehicles allowed into the city, and they would never be able to um, navigate. The roads are very, very narrow, and no car could ever fit in into the Fez in, I mean, into the Medina in Fez, which is the walled city. So everything, even in this modern world, even in 2021, it's all done by donkey. And I love the idea that there was a city in which donkeys still were primary in terms of um, transportation. Mm -hmm. And they weren't merely a kind of quaint affect. They were really important, and that's how things got done. If you ordered a television set and you had it delivered to your home, it was gonna be brought to your home by a donkey. If you were moving, the moving truck was a donkey. If you were building a house, the uh, building material was delivered to the site by a donkey. And, you know, this this is a fantasy come true for anyone who likes donkeys. (laughs) So I couldn't have been more excited. And another thing that I learned about, which added a, a really wonderful dimension to the story, was that decades ago an american traveler to morocco had uh, who was very interested in animal welfare and she was concerned about the care of the donkeys in fez that they were being worked very hard and many people had neither the means nor necessarily the knowledge to to take care of them as best possible. So she established a clinic in Fez to provide free veterinary care for the donkeys of Fez. Mm-hmm. Well, this to me was just an incredible story. I never knew anything about this clinic and the whole backstory to it. So my I headed to Morocco to see this clinic in its day-to-day operations, and to go to the donkey market. This to me was one of the most pleasurable stories that I've worked on, partly because I love Morocco, it's an amazing country. But also to see donkeys in such a primary role was marvelous.
0: There's so much in what you said there that that captures my imagination. It feels kind of fantastical or mythological or pre-modern era. And I'm also interested in this idea of animals that, that play a very specific role, that they're kind of working animals.
2: Yes. And, and, you know, I think wild animals are fascinating. I think domestic animals are fascinating. But I I'm really moved and interested in our relationship to those other animals. They're not pets, they're not wild. And we have formed a very interesting alliance with them that, that is perhaps even more complicated than our relationship to our pets. You know, our pets are practically extensions of our family. We, we, they live in the house with us, they sleep in our beds. But a donkey is in this other space in relation to people. They are not pets, though I'm sure many of them would be very happy to live inside your house. Mm. But they, they are not, they're not domesticated in that same way. And yet we've come to some agreement with them that they will work for us and we will care for them. I find that so fascinating and and really that's where this interspecies relationship seems so magical. I mean, why do donkeys work for us? They don't have to they and the donkeys in fez were the most interesting of all because many times they nobody is holding them on a lead. they are walking with their Load of six television sets, and they have agreed in some wordless way to walk through the very hilly roads of Fez and deliver these televisions. Why do they do that what What wordless relationship have we come to with them that they that they have agreed to do this for us to me that that's is magical, and it, it's a relationship that has been sustained pretty much since the beginning of human civilization. Uh, in in a way that transcends our simpler understanding of what it means to have either a pet, which I think we we understand that relationship a little more. Or a very wild animal where the relationship is simply, please don't eat me and I'll leave you alone. (laughs) And, you know, every once in a while we have, and I've in my book written about a few instances where people have developed actual relationships with wild animals. But generally speaking, we don't have... Anything other than an approach avoidance relationship with wild animals. So that those other um, creatures that we've established some connection to, uh, it's, it's a marvel. It really is.
0: Well, Susan Orlean, thank you for this great conversation and for joining us on Life Examined. We really appreciate the time.
2: Thank you so much.
0: All right, that's it for this week. The producer of our show is Andrea Brody. And once again, we hope that you'll take a moment to support what we do each week here at Life Examined. Please head on over to kcrw.com slash give to make your donation today. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you again soon.